but also we had some very good friends that were serving in a different context in a different country that were murdered on the field, the husband and the wife and their three-year-old. And um, the risk can be real sometimes, you know, and knowing that, that, that he's still worth it, even when our lives are the cost. And I think we had to have some time of processing that and grieving that, but walking away with knowing that those friends of ours would have gladly laid down their life for the gospel. Um, and the way that God is using that in that country to further his name is really powerful. Hi guys, welcome back to Raw Mission. And if you're joining us for the first time, it's great to have you with us. In this podcast, we want to take you on a journey into places and communities around the world where the good news of Jesus is not known. We want to show you what God is up to, how his kingdom is expanding and growing, even in the most unlikely places. Now, many of you come from gospel-saturated countries with churches and followers of Jesus in huge numbers and the Bible easily available. But the places our guests have chosen to live and serve in are quite the opposite, and there's often great resistance, suffering and danger for them to face. I'm Matt, your host for this podcast, and today I'm joined by Kezia. She and her husband spent many years living amongst the poor, nomadic Bedouin of southern Jordan before God called them to work amongst the wealthy elite of the Arabian Gulf. We'll hear how Kezia helped friends to interpret their dreams, how she used henna tattoos to share Bible stories, the importance of dressing like locals, and some devastating disappointments and losses that rocked her family. Well, today I'm very, very happy to have a, a friend, a new friend, actually. Uh, hi, Kezia. Nice to see you. Hi, nice to see you too. Thanks yeah, for having me. Yeah, welcome to the program. And uh, thanks for getting up so early. I believe it's about 6 a.m. where you are right now. Yes, it is. Bright and early. <laughs> nice. We're here in the UK in the middle of winter. Just got a new frost arrived this morning, hunkering down for those in the north of England in snow. But where, where are you in the States? I'm in California. Actually, we've had a bit of a storm this last couple mm -hmm. weeks ourselves. And fortunately, in our area, we don't have any flooding, but it's been pretty bad in some area of the States. But we need the rain, so yes, we're, we're thankful indeed, for it also. Going from drought to drought in California. Quite yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, it's so good to have you with us. And um, I'd love to hear a bit about how you felt first called to think about Muslims, to think about God's heart for the nations. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, I grew up as a believer and really felt always very close to the Lord. But it was when I was in university that I really realized for the first time that my faith with the Lord wasn't supposed to be about me. I think I had always been a very um, selfish type of faith. Um, what do I get out of my relationship with the Lord? Um, I loved him very much, but it was focused around me. And someone brought to mind um, the author, John Piper, and I heard some some messages from him and some some others that really gave me a perspective that it's about God and it's about his glory and about how amazing he was and is. And it really began to open my eyes. It changed the way that I read God's word. I didn't read it for where am I in this? I read it for where is God in this? And the more I realized that it was all about him and not me, the more captivated by him I became. And it became... One of the instances where I realized I can't keep this to myself. He's really so amazing. How can I not talk about him? Mm. Kind of like in Acts chapter two, where um, Peter and John say, we can't stop talking about the things that we've seen and the things that we've heard. They were told they needed to stop. And they said, we can't because we've seen and heard amazing things. And my faith with the Lord became like that. And I realized there were people around the world that had never, ever heard of him. And my heart burden just became to know him more and to make him more known. And so I first began to look for opportunities to do that. And I worked for a short-term organization for six years and began to go in and out of the India subcontinent region um, doing short-term trips. But every time I went somewhere, I said, can I stay here? Can mm -hmm. I stay here? <laughs> and I knew that in my heart, I wanted to go somewhere and stay. Then the Lord specifically called me to Arab people um, about six years after my first call. And I had been at a big collegiate conference near Chicago and called Urbana, where there was thousands of believers that gathered together to, to hear about God's heart for the nations. And I 
I walked by um, a big tent booth that happened to be a Frontiers tent booth. Mm. And I looked at the booth and I saw this brochure that had a woman with a veiled face and a black veil covering her head. And I just felt the Lord say, that's where I want you to go. Mm. And I stopped a little bit shocked. And I thought to myself, not to myself, to the Lord, I thought, I can't go to a place like that. Women like me get killed in countries like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, a representative from the Frontiers booth came over and began to speak to me. And he said, oh, are you thinking of going with a different organization? Because at the time I had a, a, a banner around my my neck that had said that I belonged with a different organization. And I just looked at him and it was though he walked in the conversation with me and God. And I said to him, Women like me get killed in countries like that. And I felt a little embarrassed that that's what came out of my mouth. But he he was just being God's voice for me at that moment. And he said to me three things that I still remember, even though this was in 2000. I still remember what, what he said to me. And he's, he said, first of all, God's not going to send weak women to countries like that. Second of all, he said, there's women just like you in countries like that. And thirdly, he said... Only women can reach women in countries like that. So God needs you to go. And it just stuck with me, even all these years later, the power of that person's words, because now now I know exactly what he was saying. There are women in the Middle East that are strong women and that don't have any opportunity to hear unless another woman were to tell them. And it does take a strength, a strength from the Lord to, to live and work in some of the hardest places. Mm. Can you? Can you just go back and imagine yourself in those days then? So you were, I don't know know how old you were at that time, walking past that stand, but where was that coming from, that fear of women like me get killed in places like that? Well, yeah, this was about about a year before Mm -hmm. 9-11, to give a little bit of perspective from American history. But at the time, the only thing I knew about Arabs was really what I saw on the news and in movies. Mm-hmm. And in those contexts, they were always the bad guys. Yeah. And so my only perspective that I had was based in in media, um, some fictional and some non-fictional. But my only exposure to that was, was what I had seen on TV. Mm-hmm. And a few minutes later around the corner walked a young man from my church and we were we lived quite far away and I didn't even know he was going to be there and I knew that he had been working on and off in the country of Jordan and I I just was God's divine providence at that moment for him to turn around the corner while I was feeling in shock about this new calling that I very very seriously felt like the Lord was saying and I I said hey I would really like to talk with you about what Arabs are really like, because Mm. I don't know what they're really like. And I have an idea of what they're like and it scares me. So what are they like? And we, we, we ditched a session and we began to talk and talk and talk. And he shared with me his heart for the Arab people and how much he cared about them, how much he loved their hospitality and how really, in fact, it wasn't anything like what he had seen on the news or in movies but but really it reminded him of what especially in very rural jordan it reminded him very much of what life would have been like in the bible and um and he shared with me how much he learned from them and respected them um and it just turns out that he began after we got home to talk about that more and more and more and we became very good friends and and about 4 years after that event we ended up getting married <laughs> so and then and then headed off to the middle east together wow that's really great so all right then fast forward to how you guys ended up then in jordan moving overseas to jordan Yeah. So we moved overseas to Jordan because that's where my husband had connections with his work already. And so we just really felt like that was the door that the Lord was opening. So we lived in Amman in the capital for a year and did language school. And our heart burden really was for me to have the same opportunity to get language as my husband. So when we got married and we knew we planned to move overseas, we decided not to have kids until we had both gone through language school. And that was a decision that we were we were happy we were able to make because it allowed both of us to really focus on 
on language without without little ones running around too. But then right when we finished language school, we had our first child and he was born in, in Amman, Jordan. And after our first year in Amman, we moved down into the south to a little village that was just north of Petra. Um, many people have heard of Petra. It's now called one of the new seven wonders of the world and really got to know a lot of people from that village as well. Kind of the side that the tourists don't really get to see. And um, But our little village, there's a there was a crusader castle there and we lived about two blocks from the crusader castle. And we lived in that little village for seven years. We worked with the the villagers that lived there and then also the nomadic Bedouin who still live in tents and they lived in our village in the summer and then down near just south of the Dead Sea during the winter um, because it snowed, of course, where we were and that's not quite nice to live in during the winter. Um, but in the summer down by the bottom of the Dead Sea, it can, we've experienced weather up to 55 degrees there. So um, it's a bit hot to be living in tents. So they, they follow two different main areas that they live in, both because of weather and because of the grazing of their sheep and camels. Um, so we have two boys. And they, they both grew up really running around in the tents with the goats and the camels and the sheep. And um, we drank hundreds of glasses of tea and shared hundreds of stories with people while we were there. And they're, they're some of the warmest, most hospitable people that I've ever met in all my travels in the world. They would give you anything you liked in their tent, even though they have very little. And we learned so much about hospitality from our village friends, our, really our village family. They gave us their last name, um, and that was a big part of becoming one of them. We became um, Abu and Um Elias, and um, everybody there called us, and we just became a part of their community. I think one of my most favorite times of the year was the spring because we don't really have seasons in California. It's just sunny the whole year, mostly, mm -hmm. at least on the coast. And so I got to experience real seasons of snow and the snow melting and the wildflowers coming out. And in the spring, the all these desert hills would be covered with wildflowers. And it was... um just a time where where there was an excitement to go and visit everyone because often during the snow, everyone was in their houses a lot more. And then all of the grape leaves began to grow and you had these very fresh new grape leaves and we all had grape leaf vines in our house. And we would, the women during the spring would go from one house to another and pick the grape leaf vines and make a type of rolled grape leaf that's stuffed with rice and, and vegetables. And um, often people call them dolme, but that's the, the Greek word for it. Um, we call it warak diwali, which means grape leaves. And we would roll the grape leaves and just share stories. And it was one of my favorite times of the year because I got to share so many different stories from God's word in people's kitchens. We would go from one house to another. We would roll grape leaves and then, then that family would eat it that night. And then the next day we would go to somebody else's house and roll grape leaves. And then that family would eat it. And I, I was able to share stories of who God was and his new life that he gave and the sustenance that he was. And there's so many stories in God's word that the Bedouin and the rural people of Jordan understand because it's their life, you know, the growth, the, the watering of the seeds when they fall on different kinds of soil. This is their soil. This is, they understand these stories. The sheep that, that hear the shepherd's voice, they understand these stories because they're shepherds. And one day we we had lots of shepherd friends. And one day we thought, let's ask one of our shepherd friends, what would you do if one of your sheep was lost? And all the rest of them were there and one of them were lost. And he said, well, I would go find it. And we said, well, what about the rest of them? And he said, well, they're okay because they're all together and they're watching out for one another. But it's the one that's lost that's by itself that's the most vulnerable. And that really opened my eyes because I think from the West, I always heard that story presented in a way that look at how unusual Jesus was to be the type of shepherd that would go after a lost sheep. But what I realized after talking to my shepherd friends is, of course, a shepherd would do that. Every shepherd would go after his lost sheep. So how much more then 
would Jesus go after one that was lost? So those stories from the Bible became a lot more alive when I understood the context in which they all took place. Mm. Yeah, it is such a privilege, isn't it, to have a different lens to read the scripture when you're in a different culture where, yeah, all those parables come to life because that's the life yeah. they're living. You know, I remember in North Pakistan seeing oxen plowing a field and being yoked together to do that. And yeah, just seeing seeing it all sort of lived out in front of your eyes does open it up for us. And tell us a bit, though, about how, how the Bedouin would receive these stories and what was their own Islamic faith like as rural people? Were they even open to discussing that Jesus might be different to what they knew? You know, it's interesting because I think I've discovered that it's a lot harder to get into deep spiritual conversations in the West than it is in the Middle East. They love to talk about God and they love to talk about spiritual things. So we never had any problem getting into these stories. They loved to hear them. I think one of the things that was challenging is we're the first time they've ever heard these stories. Uh, they had no exposure to Christianity or to the gospel or who Jesus was, aside from who Jesus was in Islam, which sometimes we would use as a bridge um, to understanding who Jesus was um, in, in the Injil, which is the word for the New Testament. And we mostly did oral Bible storying because many of them couldn't read. So it was a little bit more challenging to say, here, let's sit and study this passage. Studying something or textual learning is not something they were familiar with. So we told a lot of stories and they loved sitting around the fire and listening to stories or sitting for the villagers sitting in their living room and listening to stories. We also used a storying method where we would draw with henna on their hands and tell a story with the pattern of henna. The thing I liked about that was then they had the story stuck on their hand for about a week. <laughs> so often they would tell their neighbor the story and then they would tell the other people around them the story. So it became a good way to share stories over and over because they they had the picture representation on their hand for a week. Um, but it was it was a new soil and a harder soil. Um, it required rocks being moved and soil being tilled and a lot of watering because it was a place that the gospel had never encountered before. And often people need to hear these stories and these new ideas many, many times before there is a decision. Um, there were a lot of dreams and visions with our friends there. And that was also quite interesting. People would say, oh, I, I had a, dr a dream of Jesus. Let me tell you about it. Um, one of my neighbors said, I've been having a nightmare, actually, of Jesus. And he was standing in front of the fire. And he was standing as the judge of who goes to uh, heaven and who goes to hell, or they would say who goes into Jannah and who goes into the fire. And she said, I can't stop having this nightmare about the fire. And so we began to talk about it and to share what was happening in this dream. And she said, people were lining up to get permission from Jesus to go into one direction or the other. And they had wheelbarrows and all their wheelbarrows were full of things. Some were full of tomatoes. There was large crops of tomatoes grown in the desert. So lots of Bedouin, if they needed day work, would work as um, tomato pickers. And then um, during that season. And so there was, there was wheelbarrows full of tomatoes. There was wheelbarrows full of money. There was wheelbarrows full of gold. Um, and these different things. And she said people would bring full wheelbarrows, but nobody could get in. Everybody was sent to the fire. And of course, I think in my flesh, I wanted to say, let me tell you what this dream really means, because to me, it was quite obvious that that whatever was in the wheelbarrow was not enough to get you into heaven. Um, but I also just felt this sense from the spirit to say, don't tell her, ask her to pray for a meaning. And so we began to pray and say, let's see if God will speak to you again and tell you what this dream means. I'll go and pray and see if he tells me and you go and pray and see if he tells you. And I felt this was important because I didn't want whatever I said to come from for her to view it as just coming from my mind. And so I wanted to give that space for her to know I was listening to what God had to say rather than just my own thoughts on the dream, even though I had some pretty clear thoughts. Wow. on that. But, um, So we went away and, and we both prayed and I came back the next day ready to share with her all the meanings of this dream. And the Lord had given me some scriptures to share with her. And 
um, it was hard. And this is an example, I think, of how the evil one comes and takes those seeds and plucks them out of the soil. Because she said, oh, I don't have the nightmares anymore. And I said, why? And she said, because I went to a spiritual healer and they gave me a Quranic verse and they put it in the water and then I drank the water and now I don't have the nightmares anymore. Mm-hmm. And I I was so brokenhearted because not that I want her to have nightmares, but I felt like she, the seed was snatched away from her. Um, I still found a way to, to share with her um, what I felt like the Lord was saying through the dream, but it wasn't her problem anymore. And so it grieved my heart that there's times when we share and there's openness and there's times when we share and the person might be open, but the evil one is ready to snatch that truth away. One of the hard things in our work is we don't always see the fruit that we want or the fruit that we expect. And um, that grieves our heart. You know, I think I, I went overseas thinking, okay, if I learn the language and I learn the culture and I share the story, they're going to receive But our job is to go and to share and to glorify God's name and to be obedient to what he asked us to do. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to to change hearts. And it's their responsibility to to receive or not receive. And I think that's one of the harder things sometimes with our ministries. We didn't see we didn't see any fruit in our time there. Um, and it, it grieves our heart. We still believe that God has a promise for there. And actually in Isaiah, and I think it's Isaiah 31, there's a passage that talks about the rivers in the Arba. And many translations actually translate it as the word desert. But in the original language, it's actually a specific desert. And it's the desert that we lived in. And it said one day in that desert, the crocuses, which are a wildflower in, in the desert that grow in the spring, will bloom up and streams of living water will flow in that place. And there will be a highway of holiness where people will declare and share. Then they it will be a road in which his name is spoken all the way from Assyria down into Egypt. So we believe that there's a promise for that land. And we believe we might have been the first steps. But if you look at many many places where there's lots of fruit now, someone had to go first. And sometimes it takes a couple generations. And so we don't believe that God's word will come back void. We believe that it's doing something, whether we had the opportunity to see it or not, we know that God's name was glorified and exalted in that place. And the darkness was pierced. And one day there will be rivers that flow through that land. And one day it will be called the highway of holiness. Amen. Yeah, definitely. That's the hope we hold on to. And we we rejoice when we see other people seeing good fruit and we encourage those who aren't seeing it. And yeah, we're all going to have a different experience, but that's okay. Yeah. That's not in our hands. We can only give what we have and be as faithful as we can. And the rest is in God's hands. Yeah. So Kezia, tell me about having kids and raising kids amongst the Bedouin there in, in Jordan. How was that? For you guys, what experience was that like and how do they look back now and I suppose years later on that time? Yeah, well, they were only there in their younger years because we moved to a different country when they were four and six. But they have such beautiful memories of of running around with the sheep and the goats and the camels and um, and some not great memories of getting spit on by a camel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a rather terrifying experience for my oldest son. But we found that that we just adapted to way to the way that they lived in our village and they became part of of the village we found that it wasn't just my husband and I doing the work but it was really families reaching families i remember one time driving back from a late night visit and we thought our two boys were asleep in the back of the car and our oldest was 5 at the time and our youngest was 3 and um, my husband said, what happened on the men on the women's side? And I told him a story of what had happened on the women's side. And I said, what happened on the man's side? Because some families, um, especially among the tents, they split up and then some in the village split and some don't. Um, and so he was sharing what happened with the men and I was sharing what happened with the women. And it was we had about an hour drive home because we were pretty far out in the desert visiting this tent. And then my son in the back, who we thought was asleep, said, do you want to know what happened on the kid's side? And he he shared with us a story of how 
with all the little kids. He shared about how God created the world and he and about how Adam and Eve fell. <laughs> he was just sharing his own little story on that side. So I, I think we always viewed it as something we did as a family, you know, and 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 just like what the man had told me at the Urbana conference, only a woman could have been on that woman's side. Mm-hmm. And only a man could have been on the man's side and only a kid could have been on the kid's side. So God uses us all. Yeah, that's good. Now, what about um, as a woman coming from <laughs> California, whether it was Southern California or mid California? Yeah. And, you know, that's a very free society, beach culture. You're very used to just chilling out and wearing whatever you like that's appropriate for the beach in, in that society. I suppose, and shorts most of the time in California. So how on earth did you cope with changing over to life in the Middle East, whether it was in Jordan or the next country you moved to? Was that hard for you having to cut? I presume you covered your head and wore much more conservative clothing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the Lord, I think, prepares us for what he calls us to. And before I had moved to Jordan, I had read a book um, that was written by Elizabeth Elliot, and it was the biography of Amy Carmichael. And I had read a story that always impacted my life. And Amy Carmichael, before she worked in India, she was quite quite a famous missionary in, in India in the 1900s. And But her first place she lived was in Japan, and she was sharing the gospel with a young woman there and really going deep when all of a sudden the the woman became enamored with her long white Victorian gloves. And she, all she wanted to talk about was her gloves. And Amy Carmichael later wrote in her journal, never again will I let what I wear come between someone else and the gospel. And she started to dress like locals, which was very innovative for her time. Because remember, she went from a high neck collared, you know, hoop skirted dress to a sari in India where she had her midriff parsley showing. So this was rather she went the other direction, which was quite shocking, I think, for other missionaries at the time. But I followed her example in wearing what locals were wearing, because I feel like it, I, I never wanted what I was wearing to come between someone else and the gospel. And generally, you don't offend people erring on the conservative side. Um, you generally offend people erring on the non-conservative side. And there was different opinions of workers in our country about covering your head or or what you were wearing. Some people said, well, they'll think you're a Muslim. And I said, well, then maybe they'll ask me and then maybe I'll have an opportunity. And so for me, I didn't care if they thought I was Muslim. I cared that that they thought I was a godly woman. And that's what it means. You know, in the West, what you wear is your style. In the Middle East, what you wear is your morality and your husband's morality and your family's morality. So I think it's important to know the deeper meaning behind clothes. Sharing this podcast is a really good way to encourage more people to get involved with God's great mission, whether locally or globally. So please do help us get the word out there. If you use an iPhone, it's pretty easy to write us a review, and that has a big impact on how many people can find us. Alternatively, you could share one of your favorite episodes with your church family or home group or see you, either in person or on WhatsApp or social media. Thanks, guys. And now let's get back to the podcast. Clothes don't mean the same thing in different contexts. So I had decided to cover it was sometimes a sacrifice. Sometimes I was dressed from head to toe and in black with my head covered and it was 50 plus degrees outside. I've had a heat stroke a few times, Um, but to me, it was a sacrifice that was worth it. And I think that became really clear one time in the village. We had, I didn't always cover in the capital because not even not always Muslims covered in the capital, but in my village, I always did. And the, the second month we moved to our village, there, one of the village elders came up and knocked on their door and asked to, um, well, my husband answered the door and he said, I've been wanting to meet you, Abu Ilyas, because I know you're a godly man. And my husband said, well, come in, let me get you some tea. And then he got, you know, we did all of our 15 minutes of welcoming and bringing tea. And he said, but let me ask you a question. How did you know I was a godly man? And he said, well, we see your wife walk in the streets and her head is covered. And she dresses like the women here. And so we know that she honors God. And we know that you honor God because of the way she dresses. And I think to us, we realized 
wow, if that's what that means, then that's far more important than any kind of comfort that we could ever have. That's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, I know that we guys often have it easier, certainly in Pakistan, <laughs> I could choose. I, sometimes I wore shalwar kameez, the local dress, especially in the more rural areas, but sometimes I could wear Western, especially in the university, all the guys, all the Pakistanis wore Western clothes. But yeah, you're dead right. It was exactly the same there. When my wife covered her head, they they were very happy to welcome us as a family and so on. And they respected that. And they could separate us from just the tourists. I've also heard it said that in the West, sometimes we dress to say, look at me, notice me. This is who I am. Whereas mm-hmm. in Eastern cultures, sometimes, or more conservative cultures, they dress to say, don't look at me. I don't yes. want to be visible. I don't want to be seen. And sometimes you get undue attention, don't you, if you dress the wrong way as well. And it can be a protection yes. um, to yes. dress conservatively. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I have, you know, long blonde hair. So me covering my head allowed me to to not be as noticed, you know. And my husband said, from behind, all the women look the same. I had to figure out which one my wife was. But to me, I think it was just really helpful learning the language and dressing the way they did allowed me to fit in in a way that I never would be able to if I didn't know the language well and if I didn't cover. So then you move from a more rural Bedouin situation in Jordan to another country in the Middle East, which was also a pretty conservative country, perhaps more so. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what were the differences? What was it like going from one place to another? What were the cultural differences or where you lived or what you did? Yeah, it was interesting because we always wanted to go to the places that had least access to the gospel. And um, even though we lived in a rural area in Jordan and there was hardly anybody there, we knew that lots of people had access in Jordan. And so the Lord opened a door for us to move to the Arabian Gulf to a place where there really very few people were ever invited to go. And um, my husband was offered a job there. So it was a bit of a no-brainer for us. We said, oh, gosh, how many workers get invited to this country? So this is what we're supposed to do. So I thought, oh, I've already lived in the Middle East for eight years. You know, I'm not going to encounter that much of a culture shock. And I really think I hit the two extremes of our region. So with the Bedouin, they were uneducated, nomadic, um, poor, and we moved to an elite university in the Gulf where we were really working with the the next future leaders of the Arabian Gulf. Um, they were wealthy. They It was a graduate school, so they all had advanced degrees. Um, and it was a bit shocking because I... There were some parts of the culture, the hospitality and things like that, that that were the same, but pretty much everything else was quite different. Um, I realized that I spoke like a village lady, which they thought was absolutely hilarious. And so they understood me, but they couldn't figure out why I, as an educated Western woman with a, you know, advanced degree myself, spoke like a Bedouin. (laughs) I had to learn a more educated and refined type, not just new vocabulary from a dialect, but I had to increase my education level in the way that I spoke. Um, I had to be used to the fact that people had multiple servants. And that was probably one of the biggest culture shocks for me. I'm from a very equal type of culture. And I really struggled with the idea that some of our close friends had four or five house helpers and servants. And the women still seemed exhausted. And I thought, how are you exhausted when you have four house helpers? And I still do it on my own. And that was one of the cultural things that I actually I couldn't adjust to. I really tried to strip myself of my my westernness when I went to Jordan. It was really hard for me to put some of those things back on. Um when I moved, I felt guilty actually. We were just given our house, but the size of our house was quite large and quite nice and I I had to adjust to feeling privileged and knowing that there was other people that had nothing um, when there was other people that had a lot of waste. So it was a culture shock for me, especially with the way servants were treated, the way different nationalities were treated. I first moved to, to Jordan. I had some culture shock too, but, but there was nothing about the culture that 
that I, I would say frustrated me in the same way as when I moved to the Gulf, um, some of the injustices that I encountered. And I had to really give that to the Lord. I had to say, I had to see their spiritual poverty. And that was something I really needed the Lord to show me because they lived in a type of opulence that was frustrating to me. Um, and so the Lord really did an amazing work in my heart um, to give me the same kind of love for the second country that I was in as I had for the first country that I was in. And when I realized the the spiritual poverty there, um, it helped me to, to be brokenhearted for that country in the same way. Mm. And when we work amongst the poor, and we're doing projects and perhaps NGO work and so on, you know, people come to us and think, oh, yes, you're the foreigner, you come with this and that and education and money, resources, opportunities. Oh, yes, you can help me. We're very interesting people to them. Um, maybe, you know, there are other motives as well. And that can confuse the message of the gospel and so on. It makes it difficult for us to work out, are these friends of mine? Mm-hmm. Are, am I, is this like a patron-client thing? What's going on here? Right. But how was that then moving to a country where you're not really bringing them any expertise or wealth or, you know, they're very happy, very proud of their nation. Um, I mean, maybe they were in Jordan too. I don't know, but yeah. What was, what was that like feeling? Well, yeah. What do we bring here? You know, it's not us. It really is the gospel or nothing. Yeah. That's a really great point because I think we, in, in a way, when you're ministering, to your socioeconomic equals. Mm. There's things that are stripped away that happen in other countries. Like you said, when they're looking for visas or job opportunities, none of our friends in the Gulf were looking for those things. They were educated. They had money. They could travel wherever they want and they could get visas into America if they wanted to because they had money and power and influence. Um, But by stripping those things away, we had a more... um, equal relationship, a relationship where there was free exchange of ideas. They were not looking up to us as though we were offering something to them. So there was a level of genuine friendship that I think was quite different than we had experienced. Even though we felt like we were brought in as part of the family, there was still always this sense of, you know, you're Americans. And so you have more, um, and our our friends in the Gulf didn't usually come to us for things like like um, we need a job or we need money. But we realized that we postured ourselves, I think, right from the very beginning as people of prayer um, and people who studied God's word. And so what we became was someone that people came to when they were struggling with their marriages, somebody that people came to when um, they were struggling with their relationship with their parents, or they were, they had miscarriages, they had, or they lost a child or these different things. They realized that we were people that had something to offer them that was different than what they had. And that was Jesus. And they realized that we were people of prayer. So they would come to us and say, can you just pray for us? And that really became something that, that was a need that, that they realized that we had that they didn't have. Um, for those that didn't come to us for that, they still said, oh, you guys have studied, you know, the word of God. They wanted to talk with us about some of those deeper things. And so um, yeah, it, it stripped away some of the, the obstacles can come, um, but it added some obstacles as well. I think in the same way in the, in the West where, you know, your education and these things like that can, can be obstacles to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in California, we would say the two biggest obstacles to the gospel are, um, are academia and wealth. Um, and some of those types of things create the biggest obstacles to the gospel. Well, well, where we were, we were in one of the most closed Islamic countries working among the most academic and the most wealthy. So th- these were the three biggest co- obstacles to the gospel, pride, and, you know, they didn't think they needed anything else. Um, so it was. it took a little longer to get into deeper relationships where you could have a sense of prayer and you were a true friend and they could come to you with, with those kinds of needs. So it was a very different kind of relationship. And on the other hand, when we're working in more poorer countries and, you know, we're there to share the gospel as well, but we might be doing NGO work, community development work or teaching. There's a sense of satisfaction that comes with, 
well, at least I'm helping somebody, <laughs> even if they're not open to the gospel. Okay, yes. there's, an, there's an impact here. I can write exactly. stuff in my newsletters and talk about projects we're doing that are helping the poor. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. It's part of the kingdom of God. But when you're in a very wealthy place like you were, you've got nothing to say. Like, okay, we're helping people here in that regard. You're literally yeah. there for the gospel. And if there's not openness or you're not seeing much fruit, that could be very depressing. And you might feel that obligation to your supporters, I suppose, thinking, oh, what are we doing? <laughs> what do we have to share? So I'm sure it takes years of just perseverance. What Was there any kind of fruit coming where you were in the second country? Yes, actually there was. And you're right, though. Um, it is harder. I think I really had to release to the Lord the sense of satisfaction that I gained in um, in seeing how I could help people. Um, there, there was something that made me feel good about being able to meet physical needs. And I, I still love to do that. There's something beautiful and God calls us to be his hands and his feet. But when they, when you don't have that element and it's just the gospel, quite often that there's something in me that that struggled with, what am I giving? And the Lord had to really increase in our hearts and in our minds the value of the gospel. And I think that that was a, a mind shift that we had to switch, that what we were bringing was far more valuable than, than helping the poor. Um, and then having access to a country that most people didn't have access to, um, the Lord g- gave us a sense of of privilege and responsibility with the message uh, that was different than we had had in the previous location. You mentioned spiritual poverty earlier, and that that's yes. actually part of that is part of this, isn't it? If we don't see spiritual poverty, and you talked about relationships were so key in your second country, actually the yes. gospel is all about relational poverty. It's relational exactly. poverty, not just with your spouse, your kids, your mother-in-law, you know, this and that, but ultimately with God. And that is the yes. spiritual poverty that we're we're born into, this brokenness we have in ourselves, with others, with God. And if we see that, which we hopefully do as people of God, then mm-hmm. whatever environment we're in, rich, poor, middle class, struggling economically, West, East, just doesn't matter, does it? The heart is Jesus and his gospel um, and, and yes. eternal things that do start now. Yes. And sometimes we really have to ask the Lord to give us spiritual eyes to see that. And that was a big part of our prayer when we first moved there, because the wealth was a little bit overwhelming. And so when we just said, Lord, show us what you see, um, the darkness and the spiritual poverty, it's like he he took blinders off and gave us eyes to see past the opulence. A perfect example was our house looked really, really nice from the outside. And it had like a veneer of opulence. But we realized as we lived there longer that it wasn't built very well, actually. And things behind the scenes were just crumbling because they just weren't built well. There'd be this beautiful tile, but they didn't put the tile on right. So the tile would just fall off, you know, because it was only being held up with grout and not with the mortar that you're supposed to have to hold tile in. And we realized that in seeing this in our house, this was actually a perfect picture of the spiritualness um, of what was going on there is on the outside, it looks like it's all together. They're very high identity Islam. And also um, when, when we talk about in, in the Islamic studies world, we talk about high practice and high identity and high practice is when they're really going through all the motions of, of being Muslim. And high identity means they very much identify as Muslims. And often you'll find someone that's high practice and low identity or low practice and high identity. And there's different variations of that. Um, What's interesting in the Gulf is that they're high practice and high identity, but low allegiance, I think. And so that was a category that, that we added into that mix is they do it all from the outside. They have to appear very Muslim. They have to follow all the rules. They very much identify as Muslim, but in their hearts, there's not a deep, many don't have a very deep connection to it. So it's it's part of that veneer where it looks very polished on the outside, but they're not finding any kind of satisfaction on the inside and the inside it's all crumbling. And so just like the tile that wasn't set in mortar, their faith looks really pretty on the outside, but it's not set in anything substantial because it's not set in Jesus. And so it 
from behind, it's just all crumbling and falling apart. And so we just tended to see that God gave us these spiritual eyes to see that. And so what looks all put together on the outside, I think we realized is not nearly as as polished as it seems. So then give us some examples then of young men and women, perhaps, or older men and women who actually then broke away from their upbringing and faith and culture to to find Jesus and realize there's a lot more than what we've we've heard. Yeah, we had the really amazing opportunity to be involved um, with a, a group of people that came to faith in Christ. And um, the first person, we call him Peter, and he actually heard about the message of Jesus online. And as he heard about it, he he was just radically changed. Um, but oftentimes people will hear about it. And then if they're out there on their own, they're not really sure what else to do. So he was connected with us um, after he became a believer and we began to disciple him. And um, just watching that change in his life as he began to go into deeper levels of who am I as as a member of this culture and as one of the first believers ever to become a follower in this country. And um, he became a believer as we discipled him. He brought his wife to faith and his son to faith and his cousin and another very close friend of the family. And this was over the course of several years. And we followed the pattern where we discipled him and his wife. And then he met with the secondary group um, so that it wasn't us as outsiders meeting with the secondary group, but that we we knew them all. We met them at some point in time, but the weekly studies were we studied with him and then he studied with the next group. And we had a lot of really deep conversations of what does it mean to be from your country and to be a follower of, of Jesus? And we talked about identity. What does that look like for you? What are you going to call yourself? In the Middle East, there's a lot of baggage behind the word Christian and the and and the Arabic word for Christian as well. Um, and so we loved that what he chose was he called their group the critical thinkers. And so we just thought that was a really interesting he he just chose to go away from the all the different religious type words that he could use. And um, he said, we're the critical thinkers. We're the ones that were willing to stop and really think about this. And so his his little band of critical thinkers um, began to grow. And we just saw the beauty of what God was doing in that place. And I remember one, one Christmas, we all got together um, as a larger group and came to our house. And we began to talk with them about what a body of believers might look like in their country and the uniqueness that they have to be the first and to set some of those boundaries. And one of the things we discussed was forms and meanings in our cultures. And so some of my background is in anthropology. And so we we talked a little bit about, you know, a form might be, well, we in the context of Christmas, we had two unique things in our house. We had a tiny little Christmas tree that was only about a foot tall. And then we had a nativity scene that we had gotten in Bethlehem mm. and um, that didn't have any faces carved in it. So it was a little more appropriate and it was made out of olive wood. And um, we, most of our Christmas decoration was, was built around that. We hung stars from the top and hung angels and stars um, to represent the heavenly host. And we wanted our house to tell the, the Christmas story. So they thought it was really interesting. They're like, we haven't seen anything like this in the movies. We've only seen Christmas trees. And you just have this teeny little Christmas tree, but then you have this big scene built around, you know, Jesus. And they said, is this what, what Christians do in America? And we said, no, not really. We just, we just sort of, you know, do our own thing. And, um, so they were really, they really thought, oh, so you can just do something different than what everyone else does. And we said, yeah. And we said, you know, the Christmas tree's origins really were from not Christian culture. They were from, you know, a pagan culture. And they, but Christians liked the idea of, of having this and whatever the origins of it were, they took something from their old culture mm. and they, they changed the meaning of it and they made it into a new meaning. And now when people think of Christmas trees, they almost always think of the birth of Jesus or at least Western Christmas. And they certainly don't think of what its original pagan meaning yeah. was. And so we, we said the same thing can happen in your culture. It doesn't mean that 
You need to change everything. It means you need to prayerfully look at your culture and say, what needs to maybe be thrown out? What can be redeemed and have that meaning changed? And so we began to talk about things like Ramadan, the fasting. Can you still fast, but but for God's glory and praying for your nation? And we're like, there's nothing in there that couldn't be changed over. Um, but but we talked about what things in their culture may be changed and what things in their culture might not be able to be redeemed and what that would look like. And that we we wanted to give them the tools to listen to the Holy Spirit. We as Westerners were not the ones that were in charge of, of making those determinations as the gospel entered into a new place. It was them as the new believers and as critical thinkers and as people that learned to listen to the Lord and read his word mm. that could go through in their own culture and say, what things can we keep and redeem and what things might need to change? So that was some of our favorite conversations with this these groups of new believers as they were setting a new path in their country. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Now on the candidates course here in the UK, we have a whole session on contextualization and culture. And, and we do exactly that. We look at the, you know, what's your culture? And then let's compare that to what the scriptures teach. And yeah, what what should we keep from our own culture, let alone going into a new culture? What should we adopt or not adopt? Um, right. Brilliant questions to ask, aren't they? Even Even wherever we are right now. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So what happened after that then? Yeah. Well, sometimes in our ministries, we see hard things and we encounter hard things. And the Lord took us through a really difficult season on the field. Um, And this was our last year on the field. There was three different things that were quite challenging for us. One of them had to do with this body of believers. And the main person who we were discipling had moved to a different city um, just right at near the end of our time. And when he moved there, he met some other believers that were Westerners that that had very different ideas of what the gospel spreading should look like in their country um, that were quite controlling, that told them that they needed to really reject anything from their culture and that told them that that we were allowing them too much room in in discovering things on their own, but they really should be taught how to think, which was so different than my husband and I's style. And it caused a big rift, um, especially between the husband and the wife. Like this other Western couple really wanted them to file for asylum and move to America. Um, The wife was like, I can't, if we do that, I can never ever come back and see my family. They told the wife that she should no longer cover, but experience her freedom in Christ. Well, this is a country where we're required to cover. We're required to wear black abayas. It's very, very conservative. And so the messages they were given were different. And for us, it was quite frustrating. And the sad thing is the husband and the wife ended up getting divorced. And the whole thing kind of fell apart. Mm. And um there was a lot of appealing to the husband's pride and saying, you should come and speak at Western churches and you should, it just, it caused the growth to stop. Um, By extracting people, you're putting safety over the message of the gospel. God doesn't promise that we're going to be safe. That's not part of our, our promise. Um, We knew the sacrifices, the risk. Um, He knew the sacrifices of the risk. Um, but appealing, I think, to his pride and to the idea of safety lured him mm-hmm. into a path that the fruit to stop growing. It's devastating. I'm it was devastating. Not not just seeing the gospel stop spreading, but just personally the hours and the time you'd invested into them as a family and a couple. And just to see that unpicked and, yeah, by other workers on the field, that's so frustrating. I'm sorry. It was. And now that I'm back in the U.S. and working in more of a strategic position of coordinating different people and different strategies, one of my big heart burdens is is to talk with other companies and make sure that we are, even if we have different philosophies on the field, um, there's room for different philosophies. There's room in scripture for different ways of doing things. But I think that we need to be very careful that new believers don't get caught in the crosshairs of different philosophies. And I think there needs to be a respect and a communication 
between workers and organizations that prevents something like that from ever happening again. There's certain sense of sheep stealing, they mm-hmm. they say, that we need to be very, very cautious of. And so that, that was devastating for us. Um, but also we had some very good friends that were serving in a different context in a different country that were murdered on the field, the husband and the wife and their three-year-old. And um, the risk can be real sometimes, you know, and knowing that, that, that he's still worth it, even when our lives are the cost. And I think we had to have some time of processing that and grieving that, but walking away with knowing that those friends of ours would have gladly laid down their life for the gospel. Um, and the way that God is using that in that country to further his name is really powerful. But when the Lord calls us, he calls us to to risk sometimes and to sacrifice sometimes and to know that his name is is worthy. We all go through ups and downs on the field and there's things that that are very, very challenging and very hurtful. And sometimes we have to just step back and say, okay, Lord, what are you doing? We don't always understand what he's doing or how he's doing it, but he continues to to show us his worthiness. And that helps us to step forward, even when there's risk and there's difficulty. They were very close friends of ours. And it, it was very consuming for my heart and my mind. And I had to really give that to the Lord I kept replaying what happened to them in my mind. And I I struggled with that. And I said, Lord, I need you to give me a different picture of them other than how they died. And he really answered that prayer. He just said, like, I want you to remember where they are now and not how they went. And as I just said, okay, well, then show me where they are now, because I can't get the other picture out of my mind. And God's so loving and gracious when we come to him with those kinds of broken things. And he just gave me this beautiful picture of them entering the throne room and dancing and full of joy and walking down this long path to meet Jesus. And they had lost, they had had a lot of loss. They had miscarried four, four babies and one died at a year old. And um, so this picture that the Lord had given me of them was Jesus coming with all of their babies that they had lost. And they met in the middle and the Lord put a special jewel in their crown that was reserved for the martyrs. Um, and then they laid their crown at his feet and worshiped. And so now when I think of them, this is the picture that I have and not the picture of how they died. And God is so gracious to say, there's a whole other world that you can't see. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing things that you might not understand but I'm good. And I needed, I needed him to give me that new picture. That's really uh, very powerful. I'm very moved by that. And these guys were gospel workers as well in a different country. Yeah. Were they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not um, something we're unfamiliar with as workers yeah. within frontiers when there are folks who, who really do pay a high cost for what we do. Um, but, yeah. you know, if Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, if there is no heaven, no welcome, no, no yeah. crowns, then we are to be above all men most pitied. That's what Paul says, isn't it? It makes yeah. no sense, and we are throwing our lives away if if this is not the truth. Yeah. If Jesus isn't right. the one, and if there yeah. isn't glory ahead of us and eternity. Right. Um, yeah. So, I guess we hold on to that, don't we? Uh, and, and I love that. Thank you for sharing that that picture of of how to lift up our eyes. Um, yeah, I had something you know a little bit similar. My mom passed away a few months ago. Um, mm. Yeah, and just uh, someone had a, an image of the angels welcoming her. Um, mm. You know, she may have been riddled with cancer um, mm. and, and and fading in front of our eyes, but mm. yeah, just remember, you know, this th- there's something you know right there, just on the other side, and 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 yeah. that's the confidence we have. If it wasn't for Jesus, we couldn't have that confidence. We Absolutely. could just have religious stuff, and and that's a heart for our Muslim friends that they would know. There's a savior waiting, and it's not yeah. dependent on them. And there's a father running down the road to meet them, as you said. That's, that's really mm-hmm. that's, yeah. that's very powerful. Yeah. Gosh. Um, well, I think, you know, in some ways, how could we go on talking from that? What a beautiful place to end. This is our hope. Uh, this is our, our dream that, that all the nations of the world will come and hear this message of hope mm-hmm. and eternity. And, and we've come to know it ourselves. And we just want to share that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, God bless you and all that you're doing. Thank you for sharing your story today. 
Um, I know that you dream perhaps of being back in the Middle East yourself one day, but I'm, I'm so grateful that you get to still be involved in mobilizing and encouraging others to go and visiting teams out there and so on. And I'm sure mm-hmm. there's much more for you to do as a family. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's always just a privilege to talk about how great God is and all the great things he's doing. And so it always fills my heart to just when I share all these stories and think of all these stories, I just see, I see more of his character. I see his faithfulness, his worthiness, his love, his compassion, his shepherd's heart. I see his light in the darkness and I see his desire to push, push his returning until all have had the opportunity to hear. That's right. There will be heartbreak. There will be setbacks, but we know the end of the story and his patience yeah is a beautiful thing in these days as he waits for the the full remnant to come in from all the nations. I mean, brilliant. All right. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, God bless. And and we'll speak again soon. I'm sure. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for being with us today, guys. I want to encourage you now to take a minute just to ask God what role you can play in his mission. Maybe he's calling you to give generously. Or maybe to pray for an unreached people group and bring that to the attention of your church. Maybe to have a conversation with your leaders about running a Momentum Yes course. And maybe you want to offer yourselves to Jesus right now to say to him that you're willing to go wherever he calls you, whatever the cost. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, Do get in touch with me, matt at frontiers.org.uk. You might have questions about something raised in the episode. Uh, You might want to invite me to come speak at your church. You might have ideas for the podcast. Otherwise, do check us out on our website, frontiers.org.uk and on all social media platforms at Frontiers UK. 